Hey everybody, this is Daylon James. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Today we're returning for part two of our special mini-series of episodes that were recorded this past June at the 2019 ISSCR annual meeting. If you missed part one, don't worry. You can always go back and check it out. In part three, the finale of the mini-series will be coming to you live in another two weeks. Getting back to today, we will once again be hearing from some junior trainees, but this time we'll be covering what they think is the greatest challenge facing the stem cell research community. We'll be following that up with some truly great conversations with senior researchers at the meeting, including my dear friend, Dr. Ting Chen, who's at the Chinese Academy of Sciences. She was a uh, NISA fellow with me. So we got close then. That was years and years and years ago, and she's bigging herself up since then. We're going to chat. Also from my NICEF history, Dr. Didi Egli, who's at Columbia University. He was of SCNT fame back in the day. Also, we're talking to Roger Barker, who's a big deal at Cambridge University. He's going to talk to us about some of his clinical trials. We're getting stem cells into the clinic, people. And... Last in this miniseries episode, we got Dr. Leonard Zahn, founder, former president of ISSCR. We got a hold of him for a few minutes and got to chat. We'll be talking to all those people about everything from stem cell transplantation to hair follicle organoids and everything in between. So buckle up because we have a jam-packed episode ahead. But before we get started on all that, did you know that stem cell is hiring? Stem cell technology is the world leader in developing services and tools for scientists working in cell biology, regenerative medicine, immunology, cancer, and disease research. United by a foundation of scientific integrity and driven by a mission to advance science globally, Stem Cell is a team of scientists helping scientists. They're looking for creative-driven people to join their international team. Explore more than 100 current offerings in areas such as R&D, sales, business operations, quality, science, communication. Hey, we communicate here. But don't try to get my job. You can find all those other ones at jobs.stemcell.com. Moving on to today's episode, let's get things started by hearing what junior researchers at the ISSCR annual meeting had to say when they were asked one simple question. What is the greatest challenge currently facing the stem cell research community? Up first, we have Ojeni Tuma, an intern at the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. Ojeni, you know the question. What's the greatest challenge facing the stem cell research community? Um, I think that there is a stigma surrounding stem cells and the use of stem cells and where we derive stem cells from. So I think the biggest challenge is, uh, you said the biggest challenge, correct? Yeah, yeah so yeah, I think yeah. the biggest challenge is kind of dealing with the public and, and approaching it in a way that people won't be afraid to learn more about stem cells and to hopefully utilize stem cells in the future. I think we can all agree that that is a challenge, Ojeni. Up next, we have Oriana Genelette, a graduate student at the Max Planck Institute in Berlin. Oriana, what do you think is the greatest challenge facing the stem cell research community? Um, I would say there's uh, people are still a bit struggling to get the naive uh, human pluripotent. Um, stem cell phenotype, 
and there's a lot of uh, uh, let's say culture conditions that you can use but I it, it's not it's not like completely um, let's say develop I would say there's a bit a bit more to go and I think that's pretty important for stem cell research all right now we're moving on to Alejandro Torres you're a graduate student at UCLA in your opinion what's the greatest challenge facing the stem cell research community I think a big challenge is uh, getting a clinical trial done and approved I think there's a big concern that, especially for CIRM, they've been funded for 10 years and they've only now been recently starting clinical trials. And I think probably the public might be dissatisfied with mm -hmm. the current pace in stem cell research. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, so far, I think the field has been uh, picking up the pace and advances. Mm -hmm. I think a big concern is getting public to continue supporting stem cell research. That's a great point, Alejandro. Great point. Up next, we have Vivian Liu, a graduate student also at UCLA. Vivian, what do you think is the greatest challenge facing the stem cell research community? So there was a talk yesterday about the differences in theater-free versus in uh, xeno-free media and how there's differences in that. And I think that's really that's interesting and also scary to know that in the same cells, if you culture them differently, you can have different results. And so that kind of challenges the in vitro system of pluripotent stem cells and whether it can really have reproducible results. Next up, we have an undergraduate from the University of Florida, Aaron Sandoval. Aaron, what's the greatest challenge facing the stem cell research community? So I think one of the biggest challenges is that there's like a public stigma uh, to stem cell research uh, in the non-science population. Um, so I'm from Florida, there's a huge geriatric population in Florida and there's a lot of these unregulated stem cell clinics kind of just popping up. Um, and they kind of exploit people who are the most vulnerable, who are looking for a cure-all and they're just at their wit's end. Um, so they're just, they'd pay anything to be cured. Um, but that kind of gives stem cell research a bad name because that's not, it's not the same. This is, these are unregulated clinics. Um, the FDA is starting to crack down on these clinics, but whenever I talk to my friends who aren't in science about stem cells, uh, that's kind of the vibe that they get. They mention those clinics saying, oh, isn't this all kind of hocus pocus? Isn't this all um, like not really scientific? But uh, it's difficult because there's people who have those experiences with those predatory stem cell clinics, and then they don't know that there's actually really, really good stem cell research mm -hmm. going on here at ISCCR, of course, and um, I think it's up to the scientists to have a voice, a public voice, to talk to the lay people, to inform them and to let them know what exactly is going on, and I think that's uh, one of the ways we can tackle that problem going forward. Absolutely, Aaron, absolutely. Moving on, we have Sanjay Kumar, a scientist at Christian Medical College in India. Sanjay, what do you personally think is the greatest challenge facing the stem cell research field right now? Uh, the biggest uh, tell for the cell therapy is until somebody shows what is going to the fate of the transplanted cells mm -hmm. long term, 5 year, 10 year, 20 year down the road. Mm -hmm. What is going to happen if you put them in a heart where heart has to beat for the uh, life of the organism and how long that actually survives without any infection or anything right. else. Next up, we have Anarita Leitoglino a graduate student at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute in Melbourne, Australia. Anna Rita, 
What is the greatest challenge facing the stem cell research community? I've been very fortunate when it comes to stem cell research. Like I've never had any impediments or anything. Um, I've worked in a couple of different labs in Europe and now Australia, and I always feel yeah, it, there's a lot of support in terms of stem cell uh, research, especially now in Australia as well. There's a big hub, a big community on stem cells, and you know all the ethics around. I think it's important what people are doing nowadays, which is just educate the communities and just educate children, educate everyone that just think that stem cells are these weird magical creatures that come from these depths of it's just some some things are just ridiculous and i think educating people into what stem cells are and what we can really do is just the way to move forward because at the end of the day you just have to you want to be able to say that you work with stem cells without thinking okay maybe this person will think i'm weird and uh, <laughs> this person will think i'm uh, i don't know some sort of maleficent creature and we know that's not that's not the case. Education is the key. You heard it here first. We try to educate, but you know, can be hit or miss. You got to let us know. Give us some feedback, guys. Now, last but not least, we have Namisha Mazumdar, a graduate student at UCLA. Namisha, what is the greatest challenge facing the stem cell research community, in your opinion? Um, for one, I think ethicality, like at what point do we draw the line that this is science and this is just us going crazy with like, you know, research, like how much can we do in the name? And like when I get into research, I want to be able to draw that distinction and draw that line. Okay, this is, you know, what I need, what I should know are the boundaries of science. There you have it, folks. Some of the biggest challenges facing the stem cell research community as told by research trainees at the 2019 ISSCR annual meeting. Make sure you check back with us in two weeks for our final ISSCR episode in which you'll hear some of these same trainees give us a one-minute breakdown of their own research. Now, before we get into some of the conversations we had with senior researchers at the meeting, including some dermal stem cell talk, that was with Ting Chen, we got dermal, stem cell technologies would like to introduce you to apropos dermal cell news, covering everything from dermal stem cells and tissue regeneration to skin cancers and disorders. Dermal cell news keeps readers current with the latest news, research, policy, events, and jobs relevant to the dermal cell community. Check out dermal cell news and the rest of stem cells scientific newsletters at www.dermalcellnews.com. All right, moving on to some conversations with some senior researchers at the ISSCR annual meeting. We're going to start with a conversation we had with a little someone named Dr. Lenzon, founder and former president of the International Society for Stem Cell Research, along with two of his colleagues who are also uh, colleagues of mine that I'm familiar with. But before we get into it, I want to give you a little bit of background because we yanked them out of the crowd. Everyone wanted to chat with these guys because they made a big splash, I would say, in a, in a really positive way that I think is representative of the mission of science as a whole and specifically the stem cell community where the pace of research and innovation is moving so fast. It's really important that we're constantly checking in on each other and maintaining a collaborative atmosphere where we can make sure we can move the whole field forward. And I think this is a great case of that. Just a bit of background. You know, 
years and years ago, there was a study that introduced these novel organ-specific endothelial cells. They were blood-brain barrier endothelial cells that were able to be generated from human pluripotent stem cells, and that was a big deal because it opened the door to a lot of new platforms used to understand how drugs can permeate the blood-brain barrier, to understand how we can access this you know, compartment that's been impenetrable for many therapies, and a lot of other reasons. So this is a cell resource that could be used for all these studies, and a lot of people jumped on it, and there was a lot of work done on it. And these cells had a lot of characteristics of blood-brain barrier endothelial cells, and a lot of work was being focused on exploiting that. But it took a couple of young researchers here, Raphael Leith and Tyler Liu, to have a close look at these cells in collaboration with a lot of other groups to really take a fresh look to, you know, kind of shrug off the dogma and really take a critical view of these cells, unbiased, and, you know, frankly, to show that they weren't exactly what we all thought. Not only that, I think they took it to the next step by publishing the results in the bioarchive, opening the door and inviting criticism, creating a dialogue and a colloquium whereby we could kind of remedy and, and salvage all the work that was based on this initial resource. And they did that, in fact, by then providing an alternative. And we're going to get a quick summary of what that was like, kind of the, the energy of that, and we're going to hear from these three researchers about that. But you can see the work itself on the bioarchive from Raphael Lees and Tyler Liu about blood-brain barrier endothelial cells and judge for yourself. This was a nice conversation we had with them very briefly that's representative of everything I think that the ISSCR was trying to do, not just this year with the youth focus, but every year, and is a great example to the scientific community at large. Let's hear from them right now. All right, we're here with doctors Raphael Lis, Lis uh, Lenzon and Tyler Liu, who represent all three stages of uh, scientific education and excellence. And we want to hear, I think, what's a great story that epitomizes the kind of the goal and the horizons of the ISSCR in this year. Um, Raphael, we're going to start with you. Just give us a kind of orientation without revealing too much detail, because remember, this is all unpublished, but in the broad strokes, tell us a story of how you arrived at this kind of epiphany, revelation, whatever you want to call it? Well, basically, uh, we reached like this epiphany through like a lot of work and we were like at some point desperate to make a system work and we were under a lot of pressure to actually pull out a result and we reached a stage when we said, let's just try all the antibody we have in the fridge. And we actually were able like through this kind of desperation mode and feedback from grand mentor like Lenzon right, right next to me <laughs> to actually change the way we're doing our research and find a new theme that I think and I hope is going to be impactful soon. Right, and this I think uh, Raphael is not really stating that the revelation here was that he threw the whole kitchen sink at this system and he, they found one antibody that was the last you'd expect and that's what hit and it opened the door to a whole new idea, I think, that it is really going to upset the dogma. And I, I think that we should really highlight the, the engine of this study, who's Tyler Liu, who, get this, I mean, he's not even a PhD. This, he's not even in grad school. He 
he is uh, has his masters of course but he he has superseded all expectations in this and i think you know we could benefit from his perspective on how this uh result kind of changed his idea of research and medicine um thank you dalen uh i think that this project really did open the doors to uh, what's possible not only in science but for myself i came from a much different background without cell biology or stem cell based research experience and in working with Raphael, um, learning from the leaders of the field like Lenzon, it really opened my eyes to uh, what's possible out there and the fact that I can't um, even begin to see where I will go next. And it's uh, just a really great atmosphere to be in here at ISSCR. Sky's the limit for Tyler. Uh, I can't wait to see where he ends up. And now we're going to talk to that leader in the field. I mean, everybody's got to talk about Lenzon, all, all the influence he's had. But let's talk about uh, your mission. You know, as the founder of ISSCR, it's been 17 years now. The growth has been meteoric and the relevance of stem cells clinically has been, uh, I think, escalated. Um, and you've been, I like to think of you as like the architect of that. What has been, I guess, uh, your, your mission this year? What do you think we need to emphasize? And how do you think this story kind of, uh, is it mission accomplished for this year? Well, I think um, the stem cell field has really, uh, grown this past year. Um, for the first time, we are really doing cell therapy. We're taking cells um, that are healthy and putting them into diseased organs. And you know, over the past two years, we've seen treatment of macular degeneration with uh, IPS-derived cells. Um, a company that I'm involved with, Faith Therapeutics, also has been able to treat patients who um, by taking the cells and making them into NK cells, so they'll kill tumors. Um, we have one Parkinson's patient that's been treated in Japan, and now um, another Parkinson's trial that'll probably happen pretty shortly, a platelet trial that will happen shortly from IPS cells. And so what we're seeing really over the past year or two is this incredible growth for cell therapy. Um, and to be fair, when I started the ISSCR, that's exactly what I predicted. I said, by 20 years, we will be putting cells into patients uh, who have diseases of different organs and hopefully fixing those diseases. Obviously, not all the therapies will work, um, but I think it's certainly worth a try. And that's the vision I see going forward over the next couple of years. Uh, you know, it's been wonderful to see ISSCR grow. Amazing. Um, uh, the study of the basic biology, creation of IPS cells, um, all the way to modeling disease, finding drugs that can treat disease, drugs that people have discovered that have made it to clinical trials. And now I see cell therapy as the real uh, next step. And so I'm really looking forward for the next couple of years to see how these trials work out. Yeah, we're not ready for prime time. We're in it. This is prime time. And, and, and the youth are driving it, right? They're going to be the ones to implement this. T tell, tell me how, how, are you deeply satisfied to see this next generation of scientists that are driving the field? I think if you look at it as a field, it's an amazing field to get into right now. And you take Raphael and Tyler to be able to watch their progress on understanding uh, you know, brain endothelial cells and how they function and uh, what they are in terms of a cell type. Uh, it's uh, really, right, really remarkable. So I feel that, you know, watching the mentoring sessions we've done at the ISSCR meeting has been so satisfying. There's so many young people coming into this field. Uh, the growth in industry is quite remarkable. I, I'm so blown away by, uh, by the number of companies that are coming up in this space and the uh, ability to uh, think about 
moving products to the clinic. Very, very impressive. So, um, you know, I think at all levels, uh, you know, from training all the way through to people running their labs in academia to people being in industry, it's, it's quite remarkable. Great. That was three icons in the field, future, present, past, uh, different stages. Thanks for joining us, guys. This has been terrific. All right, we're here at the ISSCR on Friday morning with Ting Chen. Dr. Chen is currently a principal investigator at the National Institute of Bi Biological Sciences in Beijing. Dr. Chen received her PhD in 2007 from University of Virginia under the guidance of Dr. Ian McCara. Then from 2007 to 2012, she was trained as a postdoc in Dr. Elaine Fuchs' lab at Rockefeller University. Since establishing her own research lab at NIBS Beijing in 2013, Ting has been focused on two main areas. Understanding the molecular mechanism of niche-driven regional regeneration pattern using mammalian skin as a model system, mouse. Uh, and two, cellular and molecular mechanisms of regional skin diseases with the aim of providing effective treatments. Ting, thanks so much for joining us this oh, morning. Thank you for inviting me. It's been so exciting. Yeah, well, um, <clears throat> you know, we were nicer fellows together, I should yes. mention that. So we have a long history. Um, why don't we start by you telling me your research focus and elaborating on that? Uh, I think my, I have my lab for about six years now. It's a constant like shift trying to find out what I actually want to do. <laughs> so in the beginning, a lot of projects were sort of what I thought about what I know how to do from postdoc, naturally. Mm -hmm. Stem cell self-renew and all this kind of stuff. And, um, and then after a while, I realized so it's not working out for a small lab like me because similar projects done in big labs um, are all over the place. We don't have a unique angle or unique tool to do it any better than you know those big labs out there. So I started to try new things. I think it's either survive or not. Mm -hmm. And then we started to focus on this regional difference of skin because naturally skin is a complex landscape we use reductionist approach to focus on like one hair follicle mm -hmm. or a small area of epidermis. But um, that's just a simplification. And we all know like hair follicle, melanocyte, epidermal sickness are different all over our body. Mm. And they serve a particular purpose, right? And there are many, many immune-related skin disease like a vitiligo, like a loose of you know, melanocyte. They often happen in bilateral symmetric pattern. And sometimes psoriasis, they happen in unique positions, not all of our body. Mm -hmm. But nobody knows why that is. So I thought long and hard about it. It's like, maybe we should focus on this and start to apply genetics, you know, so cultural system, hopefully eventually biochemistry to figure out precisely how do cells know where they are in our body and where to grow, you know, how did this happen here and not there. Wow, yeah, you mentioned some of these diseases, psoriasis, vitiligo, and you know, people talk about hair follicle and regenerative therapy, yeah. they immediately go to like the cosmetic exactly. aspect of it. And I think that's paying short shrift to the scope of conditions that involve the skin and dysfunction of the skin. Can you just give us an idea of what we're talking about here? What is the scope of, of diseases that affect the skin and the hair follicle? Um, Broad, yeah, yeah. to say it's, the least. That's another thing. So from my, like, uh, I, I like to boil down 
things down to like simple category. So for me, I think there are just two categories of skin disease. The first one are most likely monogeneric um, hereditary like a skin disease. Mm -hmm. And those tend to have devastating defect and they're most likely to be lethal in newborn, like uh, epidermal bullosa, you know, the epidermis detached from the dermis, mm -hmm. those kind of disease. Uh, it's the, the second kind is not lethal and it happens in all stages of life, affecting many different areas. And uh, they don't kill you. So people know they have it because it's on your surface of your body. Uh, you're not going to die from it, except from you know, extensive ca uh, cases of cancer. So there are about thousands of different kinds of skin diseases out there. Most of them is easy to diagnose with no treatment whatsoever. So for me, it's like there are so many to choose from. And do you think that, like, th like you said, they're not necessarily life or death, some of these things, but um, you know, some of them are. And I know there's these stories with epidermolysis bullosa where they've had the kind of autograft in the skin yes. growing culture. Is your work also, I mean, your work is very focused on basic mechanisms yeah. and understanding, like you said, uh, more eloquently than I could, so I'm not going to try. But um, the, the, there is also this idea of like the regenerative therapies. How does your, your work kind of tie in with that? We tried uh, with one research project. Um, when I just got back into China, I was contacted by this family. They had a son in 2000. Uh, uh, 15, yeah, like about two or three years after I stopped in my lab, they had a newborn son born with the uh, RDEB, the recessive epidermolysis bullosa. Mm -hmm. um, so they know that Stanford is running some clinical trial and asked me to ask them, colleague in your field, you know, whether or not their son can enroll into that program. Mm -hmm. So before that, I never tried about, you thought about a genetic therapy or, because I think people are taking care of it. And after that experience, I realized um, there are a lot can be done. So we tried one project to do in vivo gene therapy because that's exactly around the time Cas9 came out, mm -hmm. so like one or two years afterwards. Um, in principle, we proved it can work, um, but the method of electroporation to, you know, induce the Cas9 complex into right. in vivo cells is never going to work on human. So we got stuck with the delivery problem. And then we're there. So it's technical, there's technical obstacles, but also, I mean, you were talking about it as though yeah, the skin is, is, is very complex. The skin on, you know, the hair on your head is different from the hair on your arm or your legs or whatever. So when you're thinking of a regenerative approach using, you know, skin as a, as a model, you really need to understand the diversity, right? Yeah. You don't want to put scalp hair on your knees, or maybe exactly. you do. But it's just—it just seems you put like it better than me. <laughs> <laughs> well, the nuances are important, so I think, like, regardless of, I think your basic influence there is really going to have uh, an important role in in the regeneration. I mean, regardless of, of whether or not you appreciate it, Ting, I'm very impressed. But also, you know, the skin has been called a, a great, just generally speaking, a good model for regenerative progenitor or stem cells yeah. just across the board. Yeah. How does that kind of play out? Well, how does the insights that you glean from the skin, your system, does it uh, like, is it relevant to just like, say other stem cell niches, other stem cell types? I hope so. <laughs> I think it does. Yeah. Because Elaine's lab has produced so many like general principles about how stem cells behave, how niche regulates stem cell. 
And that same principle has been found to be true over and over again in other systems. So I think the general principle definitely applies. Mm. And the skin is such an easy system to visualize, like Valentino Greco's live imaging stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Those are very hard to do in internal organs. Mm. So there are many advantages of the skin system, definitely. Right. Yeah. Right. So specifically, your recent work uh, in the last year in cell stem cell, um, looking at hair follicle stem cells and the, the mechanisms that govern their regional activity, as we, we've been alluding to. Fill us in on that, you know, without going too deep into the detail for in the interest of time, but tell us just like, yeah, basically, what was that about and, and what, what's the relevance there? Um, so it's actually been known for almost 50 years that niche determined the type of um, ectodermal organs. So people, uh, so follicle has two main compartments. One is epithelial part that give rise to the hair shaft we can see outside the body. The second is the dermal part, mm -hmm. which is a mesenchymal niche that you know instruct how the epithelial cells grow and differentiate. So about 50 years ago, development biologists has done graft experiments to show that if you take dermal papilla, the dermal mesenchymal niche, uh, from different sizes of follicles and graft them at different body positions, they can induce new hair follicle forming, and that follicle mimics the one, you know, wherever they've taken from. Mm. So dermal has an internal memory mm. about what they should be, but the molecular detail of that memory is not known. So I've been fascinated by this when I first got into the skin field. And then uh, upon reading more papers, I realized there is a peculiar mutant, type of mutant called koala or hairy ear mouse mutant. Those were randomly generated in 30 years ago by chromosome inversion. And uh, those mice, by and large, are normal, but they have extremely long hair follicles on the ear versus the barely visible short, tiny hair follicle like a wild type. Mm -hmm. So for geneticists, that just tells me there is a molecular coding system for this original difference, and it is disrupted in this kind of mutants. But the, the thing is, those mutants do not disrupt any genes. So for 30 years, nobody knows exactly what has been changed. Like your zip code, you live in whatever Upper East Manhattan versus Lower East Manhattan. They are all 10026, right? Mm -hmm. Versus 1126. So there is a zip code. We just don't know what it is, what it is written of. Mm -hmm. And um, we just obtained the line and started to do all sorts of, you know, transcription profile, find out what genes are changed, and then use good old-fashioned geneticists just to, you know, verify which gene is affecting this uh, phenomenon. I mean, it's just, the, it's just the angle we we noticed. Every approach we have are standard, I think, geneticists and mm -hmm. development biology. Old tricks. Old tricks, yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of old tricks, we met uh, as nice of fellows. I, I think we're both very grateful for that experience. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this is representative of, of kind of your career. You, were educated at UVA for your PhD, and then you did, you know, had this amazing opportunity with Elaine. I think that was, a, you know, I think it's fair to say Elaine makes a lot of careers, yours included. Um, of course, the work you did in her lab is, was all your own. Um, but yeah, and then the NICEF, and then back to China. How has uh, that transition been? You know, that the having the 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 bulk of your scientific education postgraduate be in the U.S. and uh, going back to China, how's that transition been? Um, I think I, I got lucky because the institute I went to uh, is kind of a very Western style run institute. It's kind of like a small experiment uh, running by the Chinese 
government in a way, because they want to see like why the science development in China is so lagging behind hmm. worldwide about like 10 years ago, 15 years ago. They decided, can we try to adapt the Western system into China, like a small institute and like a little bit like a experiment to see if people got in here, you know, they are valued by field experts, not some overhead uh, directors who's uh. not in your field at all. And then people can have, you know, students can have rotations instead of you are appointed to a lab when you apply for graduate. I, I mean, you think this all for granted, right? But then back when China was, you know, 20, 30 years ago, things were not like this. And also for the funding system, how you are evaluated, how you're renewed, people can actually be kicked out. Mm -hmm. But before it was like, it's like a safe university job. It's not as a competitive. So there are three major things, like how you evaluate, how, where do your students come from? Can you be kicked out or not? <laughs> Those basic <laughs> stuff. So they have this small institute, very Western style running. So when I got there, it doesn't feel like it's so much different than what I have been to. I and, guess it's uh, just everyone speaking your native language. That's got to be a boon. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, you know, I, I think what you're kind of affirmed what I, well, what do I know? But I think you're a good example of, there was this idea, uh, I think, of maybe a lot of young, uh, the brilliant youth of China would come into the Western education system to, to you know, gain the knowledge and, and that kind of the structure, like you just alluded to, was really amenable to achieving at a super high level, and then they'd stay. So there was this brain drain from China. Is this because yeah. this was kind of like the effort and to, to reverse that? And I, I think concomitant with that, like you were saying, there's this idea of China making a great push with the sciences. And I know recently there was a lot of press about how the volume of research coming out of, of China and yeah. the journals is is superseding now the West, but the, really? the yeah, <laughs> amazingly, but the, the, the catch was that like the, the quality of journals are like the, you know, it was, was not as high. But this was, you know, this was years ago. And I think what you're talking about here is the shift was to try and now raise the caliber of research that's coming out of China. Do, do you think that that's what you've noted in, in your, amongst your peers and just looking at the field in general? Definitely, I mean, without a doubt. Uh, I would say um, six or seven years ago, I was really, really ignorant. Um, at the time, most of the papers I read during my postdoc are almost exclusively from the United States or Europe. Hmm. Because I work in adult stem cell fields, specifically skin, it's not as big as EAS or IPS. Mm -hmm. So at the time, I was really ignorant. I thought, I don't think anybody's working on stem cell in China. <laughs> Obviously, that was wrong, <laughs> right? But in, in, the, in the just la last five or six years, I've known so many good papers already. For me, it's like I'm paying to see like a historic transition show mm -hmm. almost before mm -hmm. my eye. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and what? So you know, we just talked about how that the Chinese maybe generally are at the institutional level trying to emulate in part some of the, the uh, Western systems. Um, but there's a, there's a unique power that China has in terms of just the, I mean, control over the apparatus and the ability to allocate resources, like with such, you know, immense resources. Yeah. And in like human capital too, because there's so many people and so many people that are highly educated. So how do you think that, that those elements that maybe are lacking in the Western world, how does that, you know, propel 
the research in China? What's the unique power that you have in China? I've been thinking about that. Um, I don't know in a grand scale, but for me personally, it's not the it's not the money. Like money, is, of course, definitely helps. But I think for me to do good science, allow me to do good science now is a sense of security. Mm. Maybe it's just me, because when I was doing, you know, PhD grad uh, graduate postdoc, it's always like this visa issue. And when I had my kid, whether or not I would have got family support. It's like always on the edge. I could just fall off at, at any given moment. Almost that feeling, you know? It's like I have so much thing to worry about, like existential crisis. Okay. Literal, not physical. <laughs> you know, it's not yeah. like a psychological. <laughs> but, so now it's like I'm, I'm secure where I am. Mm -hmm. So I can just only fuss about my science in a way. So, but that's just for me. I think, I think that's that, not. I think that's a crisis that a lot of uh, uh, young scientists in the West are going through. Are there any uh, openings in China for the? <laughs> Can you make room for us? <laughs> um, along the same lines, what is like the level of enthusiasm you think? I mean, do you do you feel it? Like, is China really pushing for translation? Like, is that the primary focus? I know basic is always in the background. And that's the engine. Yeah. But like, is there kind of a not a mandate, but the expectation that the, that this is all going to end with with in the clinic. Um, I would say the the whole scientific community and the government also going through little little like experiments. Mm -hmm. There were periods of time you feel like oh, everybody's talking about translation or uh, you should have a company or two already. Mm -hmm. But now it's like then they realize it's not actually practical or the right thing to do. So the dialogue is starting to shift slightly to, um, you know, just stick to your basic science, do good science, mm -hmm. don't worry about anything else. So it's like constant shift of what's right, what's wrong. And uh, there are a whole spectrum of people, obviously. Some people just went ahead and say, I'm going to occupy this whatever uh, area that's already existing in the United States. Mm -hmm. But the similar company is not there in China, so I'm mm -hmm. going to do it. Clone it, yeah. Exactly. And then there are other people who are like, I don't care, I just want to do my stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a whole spectrum of uh, phenomena I can see right yeah. now. So it's like everywhere, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> everybody's <laughs> trying to figure out what's the right thing to do. We're all trying to figure it out. Speaking of figuring it out, you know, in, at the conference this year, um, generally, you know, in science this year, but also at the conference, organoids, very prominent. And um, Carl Kohler, who is Indiana, is moving to Harvard, but he really, I think, has captured, we talked to a lot of young trainees, and they're all Carl Kohler, Carl Kohler. Wow. They, I think his, his, with the visuals and the, et cetera, but you know, the, the bottom line, you saw his talk. Uh, yeah. the, the, it's captured the imagination. And I think, you know, I, I would like to have your opinion. Why do you think that type of, of, of study, or this, I mean, it's on its face, it's, a, it's an amazing development, but how is this, on, you know, everyone's doing amazing stuff at this conference, right? The talks we're hearing, why is that the one you think resonates with young people so vividly? Um. My theory is that for a lot of internal organs, the organoid grow or like a bubble-like structure, mm -hmm. it's hard to equal that to an internal solid mm. organ, right? But the, the organoid he made, the hair follicle, it is truly amazing. You can see the end product. Mm -hmm. So I think visually, it's easy to capture, oh, this is real. This is just like the real thing. But for a lot of other organoids, like you have a liver, right? 
But an organ is a bubble of liver. It doesn't look like liver in any and sense. You don't see it working. Exactly, you don't see like, it filtering. Well, exactly, right? So it's missing something. It's like vessels, immune cells, mm -hmm. whatever it is, neurons. But for this one thing, even because he's also doing the inner year, nobody say inner mm -hmm. year. Like, I don't know. Like uh, most people don't know what inner year looks like, <laughs> right? <laughs> and for it to work, it has to connect with neurons and stuff right. like that to be a fully functional inner year. But this is different. Mm -hmm. You see a shaft, it is working. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I think, and when you talk to them, they say, Do you see the hairs? Yeah. We're there, their hairs <laughs> were growing. But also, I think the, the people who know, and this isn't my field, but you, you could elaborate on this, is that the fact that the that they grew outward as mm. opposed to like being embedded and forming like some kind of, I don't want to call it an ingrown hair because that's not what it is, but the fact that they grew outward yeah. is not a small thing. Is that right? Um, like I, that they kind of looked like hair. Like it's yeah. like you can envision that. Because like, I, I also remember seeing your papers from way back and that was kind of what you did also, right? You would take a nude mouse and you transplant yeah, and then yeah. you see hair growing. Yeah, yeah. What, what's the difference between that and this? I mean, is it the PSC? It's the origin it's of the cell. It's a huge difference. Mm -hmm. Because back then, when we did the graft in the skin field, we have to combine mesenchymal cells and epithelial cells. Mm -hmm. You definitely need both, right? So those cells come from skin. You isolate them, especially the dermal part. The dermal fibroblast has to come from skin dermal fibroblast mm -hmm. in order for this graft to work. It's already a specialized niche type of cell. He used IPAs and EAs, and uh, I don't think the mechanism is quite worked out yet because he just saw it happen. But he did a really nice job, you know, showcase the whole process. Mm -hmm. There are a lot to be done. But he used a single type of undifferentiated cell mm -hmm. that somehow spontaneous, not spontaneously, <laughs> <laughs> magically, <laughs> became two different epithelial and mesenchymal. Mm. And they work together to give a hair. Yeah. So. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, that is something. Um, and that is actually what uh, we all envisioned. And I think cynical self was like, yeah, well, we'll see. Five to 10 years, my A. It's going to be, you know, maybe not my lifetime, but that this is, I guess, what we, was promised. Yeah. You know, this is a, the end product of yeah. organogenesis from ESL, so it's a big deal. Along those lines, uh, just to end, what are your hopes uh, for the field? Like, you know, we've kind of realized. You know, where we started, you know, around the turn of the millennium, ESLs were just, we were just so concerned with getting them, mm -hmm. right, and, and working with them, and stem cells, it was all about the controversy, and mm -hmm. the hope, and the promise was high, and then, you know, we've moved on now, and we've come to a place where there's been really realization of some of those goals, a lot of adult stem cell therapy mechanism is understood, and, and application even, and some trials, this stuff's going into humans. What are your hopes for, you know, the next 20 years? Oh, I think it's two area. One is you have to be able to put the cell inside the body and heal inside aspect mm -hmm. in any given organ. So I think that's lacking for the uh, from the previous ten years of IPS year study mm -hmm. and adult stem cell study. I think collectively in the next ten to twenty years, if somebody can put a type of cell inside animal human body to actually mm -hmm. make a regeneration happen like fully functional intact regeneration happen not just partial or minimal function regeneration that would be yeah that's it the second aspect is actually i hope the organoid can push people to establish in vitro screen process like a genetic screen 
whole organism level and uh, chemical screen. Mm -hmm. So I think there's two. One, direct application direct and application. then diagnostic and, and modeling, yeah. And the drug application mm -hmm. screening system. Mm -hmm. Because most of this in vivo skin are very complicated. Not just one 2D layer of cell can recapitulate that. Mm. It has to be like an organ-like level. But you cannot do all screen on any organ level, right, tissue in vivo. Mm. So I think this is, is, a, is really exciting. I want to see somebody give me like a organ level disease model. So like, oh, that's it. Hmm. Okay. And I hate to end on this note, but what are your greatest fears? My greatest fears? Man. I mean, I could say that it's kind of wrapped up in what you're saying, the hope of having this applied, but I think everyone shares that hope. And my great fear, like everything in science, is that we, we, someone moves too fast or too, too you know, too, oh. with too great a risk. Do you think that this is, that the regulatory apparatus is, is strong enough? you know, in China, in the U.S., wherever, that we can, you know, do this in a, in a conservative enough way that there's little risk of, because, of, you know, there's so many different applications that we want to use these cells for. In any one of those, there's a whole, you know, myriad risk that is specific to that treatment, right? So it's, it's hard for me to imagine that we're not going to have some, some bad outcomes that you know that are treatment based like do you think that there's room for us to fail in the in treat not us because we're the scientists but the clinician is there room for failure in stem cells or is any failure going to be so visible that it's i mean that's my fear i wonder if you think that it's un, it's like i'm just paranoid or, or i think you you're definitely right uh i, I would guess like the in vivo gene correction adenovirus that you know turn on oncology. Mm -hmm. That set the field back 20 years, right? right? Something similar potentially could definitely happen. And then the whole, you know, the atmosphere is going to shift. Like nobody would want to touch this anymore mm -hmm. until 20 years later. Mm. Yeah, that would be horrible. Right. Yeah. Well, I think we're on the right track thing. I I'm sure you agree. And it's in no small part thanks to your efforts. Thanks so much for uh, joining us this morning. Oh, thank you. She has her plenary tomorrow. Unfortunately, by the time you hear this, she will already have had her standing ovation. So maybe we'll have to see that on the replay. Oh, man. Guys, this has been Ting Chen, my old friend, uh, joining us at the podcast. Thank of course, you. Of course. It's been fun. We have stolen Dieter from the poster session. This is Dieter Eagley, who is uh, an old friend. He is assistant professor, associate professor now. Assistant. Assistant professor for the time being. And uh, well, I'll let him introduce himself. Uh, Dieter, please, thank you for joining us, by the way. Hi, Dan. Good <laughs> to see you here. So uh, why don't we start with your title? Well, I'm at the Maimonides assistant professor mm -hmm. at Columbia University. Mm -hmm. So I got this title like two years ago. And it, it's a really intriguing title. You know who Maimonides was? Yes, the ancient a, Jewish doctor he from history like, and philosopher. He was like doing science and philosophy mm -hmm, and everything. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of nice to sometimes look beyond, you know. <laughs> well, looking back to biology. look forward, I think, with there, it's a, a nice callback to the past. The thing is about Dieter is he'll never say it himself, but he is probably one of the, the progenitors, I would say, an apt name in a stem cell meeting because he 
was kind of the, I'd say the medium, the transit amplifying cell between the, the kernel of stem cell as an idea and the actualization and real implementation of the field. And that took the form really, I think, in large part with uh, SCNT, somatic cell nuclear transfer. Would you mind just uh, talking to us a little bit about, you know, this was years ago at this point, yeah. but it was a real seminal, I think, uh, study in the field and it'll help give us context. Please share with us, dude. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, yeah, I love to talk about that. It's really exciting. When I joined the stem cell fleet, there were these grandiose ideas, you know, and none of it was possible yet. You know, how make a personalized stem cell. How would you do that? Mm. Okay, let's try cloning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> <You> of course. <laughs> so we tried cloning and eventually it worked, maybe 10 years later. <laughs> um, and then people also found the IPS methods and make autologous stem cells that way. And we couldn't make any differentiated cells essentially, you know, maybe a few or maybe one or two percent of anything. And now there are protocols out there that you can just make motor neurons, beta mm. cells, heart cells. You join a lab, you join any lab essentially, working in stem cells and you make your exciting cell type. Mm -hmm. And they're making it wholesale in the millions, yeah. right? You got <laughs> it right there at hand. It's amazing. It's amazing the, the delta, right? So you were there when everything was impossible and you kind of initiated that, that era of possibility. But um, now, looking at this meeting, you know, you, it really, I think it drives it home, looking at the amazing technologies that we've seen, a lot of organoids, a lot of single cell seek, of course, uh, the technologies du jour, but w what would you say is the most surprising and uh, I would say, you know, impactful development, given your long arc? What, what has been the most impressive development in the field that has really driven m many other things forward? Well, I think at that time, you know, the energy was what's going to be possible. And now it's really about, about implementation. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people here working in, on translation and starting to put these thoughts into people. And it's really, I think, happening within the next couple of years. And we're going to see a lot of trials. And I think the energy is now there. And mm -hmm. you see commercial, um, you know, companies coming into this field, you see job opportunities in biotech more and more. So the field has changed a lot from basic science to it's becoming more of an applied science. Well, I, I don't want to be cynical, but do you think it's been kind of appropriated a bit by industry? I mean, part of the, this meeting bit. is bringing industry into the fold with academics. Yeah, a little and, bit. And, you know, so it, now it's become really hot, I think. That, that, that I'm excited about it because as soon as industry comes in, it kind of suggests that we're, we're poised to capitalize. Do you think that their interest is reflected in the real, like we're on the verge of a real clinical application? Yeah, definitely. In diabetes, definitely there's several companies that are like on the verge of putting these cells into people or have already done so. And this is gonna, you know, cure some people from diabetes. There's mm. no doubt about it. Mm. The, you know, how is this gonna, get to the masses, the many people who have diabetes or another degenerative disease is not so clear. And how we are going to translate the whole of the stem cells mm -hmm. is not clear at all because of the costs of, mm -hmm. of the industry. But I think the, the stem cell field is where it is, it clearly has matured. Mm -hmm. And the concepts are so have been formulated years ago. And I think very often when you have a new concept, people are super excited mm -hmm. and there's so much energy in there and I think now we work a lot according to established concepts so maybe 
in the science itself, you know, the pick reprogramming, pick one of them. Mm -hmm. What's new? <laughs> the programming, you know. Mm -hmm. Initially, it was like huge excitement. Oh, you're gonna try to reprogram, you're gonna find this about the programming. But the, the enthusiasm has, you know, the field has matured mm. and it's kind of become a little more uh, like standard. Or cell differentiation is kind of, you know, it's like part of the toolkit. Taken for it's granted. It's like taken for granted. Yeah. And so, you know, now that the field has matured, it means maybe um, we also need new things. So what could be the next new thing, mm -hmm. right? What could be, you know, in terms of research and science, what, what's coming next? What's the next and big thing? What we are missing right now is a little bit this thing that hasn't been done yet. Mm -hmm. The thing we don't even know. I mean, it's interesting you say that because the, the focus of this meeting, it's been said and stated uh, that, you know, it's about the youth emphasizing the young scientists, putting them out front. So clearly, I think uh, that the organizers here is of the same mind that we need to see the next thing. And I guess the idea is that it's going to come from the young scientists yeah. out there. How do we do you think this the, the mission this year with the young scientists focus has been effective? And do you think that, you know, that that the future because you get both sides, right? You have your Lenzons, you have your George Daly's, your John Dix, the mega, you know, icons, Sean Kerr and Doug Mountain, and they're not going away. So is it, you know, <laughs> is there it seems like we're trying to create room for the young scientists, but is there room and how do we make room? Well, we'll need them. I think one way is to um, put new speakers, new faces on big uh, platforms, you know, primary mm -hmm. speakers, keynotes. Key I mean, that's a risk for the organizer because, you know, you don't know what they're going to say. <laughs> but, but, you know, I think it's true. We need those highly, you know, um, ambitious, the aggressive, the experimental, yeah, we, the we adventurous. Do need, yeah. We do need those and people who see new ideas. The maturing of ideas is important and great and because it will lead to translation. But I think we are at a point in the field where we need also some new energy. Mm, mm. You know, some new excitement, some... Something fresh. Yeah, some, something new. Mm -hmm. um, you know, reprogramming is now 10 years old. Mm -hmm. Nobody turns their head anymore when, you know, making IPSL. Yeah, right. <laughs> We know well, it that. seems like now that we're seeing a lot of single cell seek plots, we're seeing a lot of organoids. And I think what everyone's excited about... The techniques have evolved. You know. Yeah, the techniques have evolved, and I guess well, it's everyone's so excited about next year. I wonder if it's if there's a trickle-down, and next year there's going to be something <laughs> brand new. Like, this is dominated. The whole field is dominated by organoids and single cell seek. Do you think that, like, it takes a few years for that to taper off? Or is, next, is the field moving so fast nowadays, do you think that we're going to see a whole new you know, technology in play, or is that a little bit I, too... I think there's still a lot of things to find in the human genome and, mm -hmm. you know, all the... So genomics, things. you think we have, we've not really, we've scratched the surface clearly, but you think there's a lot left underneath with the genomics to understand? I think there's a lot of questions in the human genome that we don't understand. What makes us different as a person? Mm -hmm. What, you know, are, is maturation of a cell from we can take a cell back in, from an adult cell to a pluripotent cell. How do we move it forward? Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Forward in time, backward and forward in, in time. That's still quite a new question. So how do we you know, mature a cell more quickly in culture? Mm -hmm. Instead of having, you know, maturation of a cell is very important, especially for stem cells. Very often what we make is not fully mature. 
right. how do we make fully mature cells? I think that's one thing that hasn't been accomplished yet and is going to be very important. There are things in the human genome, like a lot of dark matter in the genome that we don't <laughs> understand. Hmm. You know, why is it? Why is it there? What does it do? So no, I, I guess think this, there is a lot of pieces, things in human cell biology that we don't know. But of course, you'd also limit it somewhat in the systems that you can use. Yes. You, you're not going to make a human being. <laughs> Aren't you though? Aren't you, Dieter? <laughs> well, you know, speaking of maturity, I've seen you mature as a scientist. How about you? Aren't you? Yeah, well, I, I might. I might. Maybe from an egg and a sperm, I would make mm. a human being. But I don't know about it from stem cells. Anyway, my man, it's been great watching you mature as a scientist and a man, uh, close friend and uh, a brilliant guy. Thank you. Dieter. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you. My pleasure. All right, now we got Roger Barker joining us. Uh, he's a professor of clinical neuroscience at the University of Cambridge and consultant neurologist at the Addenbrooke's Hospital, Cambridge. He's a PI in the MRC Wellcom Trust Stem Cell Institute in Cambridge and directs the UK regenerative medicine platform in pluripotent stem and engineered cells. For the last 25 years, he's run research that seeks to better define the clinical heterogeneity of two common neurodegenerative disorders of the CNS, central nervous system, namely Parkinson's and Huntington's disease. Dr. Barker, so thanks so much for uh, joining us today. No, it's nice to be here. So why don't you start by uh, giving us a little bit more uh, clear uh, explanation of your research focus and your goals. Yeah, so, I, so the work we, we, which we've done uh, has been really to try and understand how common diseases uh, vary uh, within the population. So if I take, for example, Parkinson's disease as an illustration, uh, when we when I set up my lab 25 years ago, one of the things we wanted to do was to move experimental therapies into patients. But the, the sort of question was, well, who are the right patients? So what we did was we collected everyone with Parkinson's in a given period of time in a given area. So it was from 2000, 2001 and it was in the county of Cambridgeshire in the east of England. And we collected everybody and we followed them over time. And then we repeated the study uh, eight years later over a longer period of time and followed that cohort of patients. And the idea is that if you collect everybody from the community, as opposed to people who just turn up in your clinic, you don't have a bias, you then follow them over time and you say, well, what happens to them? And the, and the key thing we were interested in was, you know, uh, what happens to survival? And one of the problems with Parkinson's is people develop not only the movement disorder, which people are very familiar with, the tremors, the slowness, the stiffness, but actually they develop thinking problems and a significant proportion develop a dementia. And given that one of our focuses was to try and uh, repair the brain around the dopamine system, which controls some of the motor features, if you put that into people who were gonna get an early dementia, it would not be to their benefit and it would not actually promote the therapy. So what we discovered was that actually, as you follow people over time, they clearly segregate into people who develop an early dementia versus those who do quite well. And we could identify some of the factors at presentation which were predictive of that. So uh, age was a critical factor. The younger you were, the better you did. There were subtle thinking problems, so uh, the ability to generate lists of animals. If you couldn't list more than 20 animals in 90 seconds, you were in trouble, uh, which probably everyone will now do. Uh, uh, and a visuospatial task, drawing these interlocking pentagons. And, and so, for example, if you were over 72, couldn't do 20 animals in 90 seconds, couldn't draw the interlocking pentagons, your chances of being demented at five years were 88-fold greater than those who were not. 
in that category. So we, so we, this is what we've done over the years, and we've we've defined these two groups, which may just be the ends of a spectrum: people who do rather well, who have a disease that's mainly around the dopamine part of the brain, and a group who do rather badly with an early dementia, who have a more malignant, diffuse uh, form of Parkinson's disease. So therapeutically, what does that mean? Especially since we're at a stem cell, uh, you know, meeting, is that uh, the stem cells which we been particularly interested in at that time we were actually looking at dopamine replacement through fetal tissue not through stem cells was we clearly wanted to position our cell therapy into the patient population who are likely to benefit which are clearly the younger patients so the idea would be and that is what uh, panned out with the trial that we subsequently did and for the trials we're planning to do is this group of patients the younger patients who don't have these subtle cognitives in the ideal group to target for our dopamine cell therapies and they would also be the ideal group for dopamine gene therapies and things around that. Now, obviously, disease modification, which is the other side of the disease, uh, therapeutics, if you like, things that actually get in and slow down the disease. Whilst they could be used in anybody, it would seem more sense to actually target those in the people who are going to do badly. Because if they're going to develop an early dementia and you can stop that, you've demonstrated disease modification and it will make a huge difference to people with Parkinson's in general. So that quest to understand different types of Parkinson's has actually got therapeutic implications, which is now being played out in how we actually bring the new therapies to clinic. I'm glad you, you provided that context because I think people at these types of conferences, because it's a stem cell conference, they're so mm -hmm. focused on that back end, right? Yeah. When the system is degenerated and you're trying to uh, you know, implement the repair process. But like as a clinician, you have the, the I think the, the more broader insight or understanding that uh, that it's really more complicated. You know, diagnosis, figuring out who the patients to treat. I think yeah. is what I, I want to really focus on is that's critical, right? Because yeah. especially in the brain, it's just, it's a very complex organ and and not terribly well understood relative to other organs. With the fetal cell grafting, though, mm. I mean, nevertheless, in spite of the fact that, you know, as a clinician, you understand the whole organism and are focused on the whole organism. Like you said, this is stem cell conference. And I think a real prominent aspect of your work was this fetal cell grafting. Where, where are we with that as a, as a therapy, uh, fetal cell graft? Yeah, good question. I mean, obviously, fetal tissue. So the, the principle here is obviously you take the developing dopamine cells from an aborted fetus and you, you turn it into a cell suspension, you inject it into the brain of people with Parkinson's disease. So in order for that to happen, you have to have access to uh, tissue that's come from termination of pregnancies and you have to have quite a lot of it because each side of the brain requires in Parkinson's disease where you require at least three to four fetuses. So this work's been going on since the 1980s and, you know, in the 80s, it began in the late 80s and in the 90s, it was demonstrated in these open label studies by which I mean everyone knew what was happening, the patient, the physicians, everybody. There was quite a significant improvement in some patients. And that led, uh, which is actually quite interesting at the current time, because uh, in 1992, when Clinton came to the White House, Bush had put a ban on federal funding for fetal tissue, which is not dissimilar to where we are now. Uh, Clinton uh, made it possible and trials then took place, which uh, in retrospect were probably a little premature and, and not properly thought through. And they ended up showing that fetal tissue produced side effects and no benefits. We, we then reanalyzed that and, in, and 10 years ago, we received funding from the European Union in, in Europe to do another trial with fetal tissue. Now, one of the things that then happened with that trial was that we, the rules kept changing all the time as to what was needed and regulation. And that's one of the issues which is difficult with these trials. 
So it took us five years to get to the point to actually transplant the first patient, which was in 2015. Mm -hmm. And the trial, uh, at least the first arm of the trial, was to graft 20 patients. Uh, and what also proved to be the case was that getting access to fetal tissue, mm -hmm. even though there aren't the same problems necessarily in, the, in Europe as there are in, um, especially in the UK and Sweden, which is where the trial was taking place, compared to the US, it was still very difficult to get enough tissue. So from 2015 to 2018, we attempted to graft 20 patients. We ended up grafting 11 patients. And for those uh, surgeries which we did, which was actually 21, because one patient only had one side of the brain transplanted and didn't want the other doing for a variety of reasons. For those 21 operations, 87 other operations were cancelled because we didn't have sufficient tissue. So the purpose of that trial had always been really not to develop a therapy for Parkinson's, which would be a fetal product, because outside of the ethical problems, there were always logistical problems. There's no standardization. So although you can try and do everything in the same way, everybody ultimately gets their own unique transplant from their own unique set of fetuses. The, the point of really the study was to show that you could get more consistent results and you could rationalize how to do this around patient selection, which I've already mentioned how you actually prepare the tissue, how you implant the tissue, how you immunosuppress the patient. So there was a whole series of procedural aspects to the trial, which we felt were important to increase the risk of success. Now, obviously, we don't know if it's been successful because the trial, the last patient was grafted last year and the primary endpoint is three years after the uh, second transplant. But what it has done is that the work we did setting up TransEuro, which is what this fetal transplant trial is called, uh, the, the work that went into preparing it and the execution of it has actually laid the foundation for the next generation of stem cell derived dopamine cells for Parkinson's disease. And sometimes people say to me, well, why did you ever bother doing fetal tissue given all the reasons you've said for it, for, it, for it not going anywhere? And the reason was that when the grant was awarded in 2009 and we started in 2010, there were no protocols for making dopamine cells from stem cells. There were for mice, but there was nothing that was consistent or useful really that you could seriously take to clinic from a human pluripotent stem cell source. And that really was transformed by papers from the uh, Lorenz Studer's group in 2011 and Marlin Palmer's in 2012. So, you know, if our grant had been given us three years later, we may have taken a very different route to where we have been over the last few years. Well, I think your route was still, it took a lot of courage. I think you, you, you mentioned the uh, in an earlier trial, you had some side effects of the yeah. dyskinesia, I think you're alluding yeah. to, and that, that, that this was very visible. Yeah. And because I feel like the negative outcomes, especially when they're like mm. vivid as that one must have been, um, gets outsized attention. And I think maybe part of the impetus of your second trial and good rationale is to show that, yeah, that with with a more refined approach, mm. uh, you, you can avoid those. Would you say that that, that was the case? And, and can, is it too early to say whether or not dyskinesia is, or any other side effects can be ruled out? Yes, yeah, so, so I, th I think you're absolutely right. You know, things which are very obvious on video are very striking. And I think you have to take it in the context with what else is out there for Parkinson's disease. And mm -hmm. that's, that's true for all things that the stem cell medium is, you know, we often only think that everything comes down to a stem cell therapy when there's lots of other things. So you have to remember that when those fetal transplant trials, the NIH ones were, were published and they were the videos were shown, it was at the time when deep brain stimulation was just coming into its ascendancy. So you see someone with these graph-induced dyskinesias versus someone who looks normal with deep brain stimulation and you think it's a no-brainer as to which of these therapies got a future. 
Now, uh, you know, there were reasons why those dyskinesias came about that we thought. And in the new trial, we obviously tried to mitigate against having those. And, you know, I would say that uh, at least the sort of superficially what we've seen so far is nothing like that was reported in the earlier uh, trials. So, uh, you know, I think I think the important thing with trials, and, and this is this is true and will be true going forward with stem cell therapies, is there is a sort of belief that that when you start, it will work and it will work first time and it will work very early on and, and everything follows a nice linear pattern and it all falls into place. You know, the history of medicine is that that's not the case at all. You, know, you look at transplantation itself, you know, Christian Barnard was the first man to do a heart transplant. The patient lived for a few weeks. I mean, it made no material difference to that patient at all, whether that transplant had been done or not. But obviously, what you learned from that was it was technically possible to do it. And then the question was, how do you stop rejection? And then immunotherapy had to be resolved. And so I think, you know, it's learning as you go forward. So I think one of the one of the key messages I always say is that trials often said to have failed because they didn't reach their primary endpoint, the, the, the aim of that study. But that doesn't mean the trial failed. It just means you failed to reach primary endpoint. You should always learn something from trials. And I think that's going to be very important going forward that we that all trials, if you like, are as transparent as possible in terms of what they've done and what they've published uh, and what they found, rather, so that people can then start to interrogate why it may, may not have worked. And ultimately, of course, these things may not work, uh, but we don't know till we've tried. And, and I think people are often looking for quick answers when, in fact, it's going to be a bit more measured. So although we've, although we've, you know, we've, we've defined these subgroups of disease, there may be a subgroup within the subgroup that are particularly responsive. Yeah, and you, you, you talked also about how it was the timing, perhaps, but I think, you know, it's also important to show with the fetal, I think there was a lot of value in spite of three years later, you might have been dopaminergic, but I'm glad you weren't because the, the fetal, I think, is an important milestone. And, and you, as you said, it kind of paves the way for yeah. the uh, yeah. IPS or PSC derived cells. Do you think that that's going to be, uh, it's going to take a little bit of jiggering because, you know, fetal and IPS drive, or in this case, because it's really the dopaminergic cell, mm -hmm. maturation state or any yeah. of those things don't don't really play. What's your, your view there? Yeah, I think you probably don't have to be too sophisticated, really, because if you really think back to the original experiments, you essentially take a bit of dead fetal midbrain mm -hmm. and you shove it in the head. And most of the cells aren't dopamine cells, and it survives, and it makes connections, and it makes people better. So that is not. That Can is I not... just ask? Is that how you explain it to the patient? Because <laughs> <laughs> I well, think they would opt out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not a salesman, uh, but 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 you know, if you think of just how crude that is, right. and it works. Yeah. You you start so people often say, well, you know, should we have optogenetically dread regulated yeah, cells? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you say, well, that may that may give you a level of refinement, but actually, you don't need to be that refined to get it to work. Now, having said that, one of the critical things will be you do at least have to arrive at the right type of cell. Mm -hmm. So one of the one of the problems in the field has been, you know, what what is the right type of cell? Well, it's a dopamine cell, but there are lots of dopamine cells in the brain. So it has to not just be a dopamine cell, it has to be a nigral A9 dopamine mm -hmm. cell, the one you lose in Parkinson's. And then the question is, well, what is an A9 nigral dopamine cell? And that changes year by year as people have new techniques. So initially it was just a bit of staining. And uh, now we're up to sort of single cell transcriptomics, but that doesn't necessarily tell you you've got a functional neuron, so now you have electrophysiology. So uh, I think ultimately, as long as you have something that approximates to a midbrain dopaminergic neuron, it will work. 
the question then arises, well, and I think that will work in the first trials, uh, and that's the, that's the principle which people are working towards. Now, whether that will be better for uh, an ES or an IPS, uh, I think is, uh, I don't think there's any, any reason you think one's better than the other. And then the question that follows from that is, well, it, can we be more sophisticated? So now that we can manufacture something, which we couldn't really do with fetal tissue, we could only prepare it, you know, can we start making, you know, these univer using universal cell lines, knocking things out? Can we put things into the stem cells to give us more regulation? And all of that is possible. It brings with it, a, you know, a whole new layer of regulation. Uh, and, and of course, it's a selling point if you're a company that I've got a cell that somebody else hasn't. That's what distinguishes me. But do we actually need it? I think that will be a much harder question to answer, really. Um, so yeah, I mean, we're all about cells, 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 and, and regenerative this and that. But you study other things too, yeah. you know, surrounding uh, neurodegenerative conditions. We'll see the disease mechanism, the etiology, yeah. like how it works yeah. and how you might stop it from happening yeah. with a more, let's say, traditional paradigm, pharma paradigm, drug yeah. or whatever. This getting back to cells and stem cells. In this conference, everything's about yeah. organoids. Not everything, but a lot. This yeah. year, the last couple of years, it's been a tremendous emphasis on organoids. Do you think that there's a, a means, or it's 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 practical to ever, you know, deconstruct the disease mechanism for Huntington's, Parkinson's in kind of organoids? Or do you think that's a bit, you know, reductionist? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I think it's. Um... I mean, the more faithful the model is, the more you can learn from it. I think there will always be a problem with the diseases we study, uh, we, you know, we treat using organoids. And, and, the, and the, the problem is that, you know, the problem used to be that you use cell lines. Well, that's nothing like people. Then you can make cells from people. That's great, but that's one cell type. Uh, then you can make more cell types, but then it was 2D cultures. Uh, and so 3D, you know, you get some of the architecture. They're not, it's not perfect. I mean, it's not the same as a, you know as the brain. It's only a part of the brain when we're looking at you know neurological diseases. But the you know the biggest risk factor for any of us getting any disease is age. So you know ultimately the best model you'll make in the lab is to make it you know human brain organoid and then study it in seventy years time and that will be you know absolutely perfect. But of course that's so then what you have to do is you have to speed things up or you have to add things to it. So A, that then creates problems because you're now making an artificial situation and how much is that actually relevant for the disease process? I think the other area which is very interesting in disease, and I heard a talk the other week about someone talking about cancer, actually, someone who's going to talk about breast cancer, saying that breast cancer is not cancer of the breast, it's a systemic disease. Mm. And I think one of the questions is, which we have to start asking ourselves, is how many are diseases of the brain, for example, <laughs> not a systemic disease. So it's well known now that, you know, in Parkinson's disease, there's pathology in the gut, there's pathology which affects the heart. There are clearly changes in the immune system. There's changes in the microbiome. So anything that has a sort of, I'm just modeling part of the brain is, is, is very helpful for cell autonomous or at least cell, cell interactions in the brain, but it doesn't have a vasculature. It doesn't have a microbiome. It doesn't have those systemic elements, which I think are gonna be important in understanding elements of of the disease. Um, but of course, you know, if you follow my argument to its logical conclusion, you do nothing because you'll never be able to do anything other than study people. And people are 
uh, as we discussed at the very beginning, they are not inbred. They are not, uh, you know, of one type that can be sacrificed at certain points to study things. They're very heterogeneous and they follow different routes. They eat different things. They behave differently. So it is complicated. But I think, so I think organoids will provide some useful information in much the same way as IPS uh, and induced neurons, which we do quite a lot of, trying to look at directly reprogrammed fibroblasts into neurons from patients to try and study some aspects of the disease. But I suspect it will be a combination. You know, it'll be studying that aspect of disease while studying peripheral measures in patients and then trying to bring it together in some in some to reconcile it, yeah. Um, although I have to say, you know, I caught Paula Arlotta's talk and she's got a four-year-old brain organoid. So wait another 66 <laughs> years and maybe yeah. we'll be approaching the yeah. symptoms. Um, <clears throat> So yeah, the, the the focus this year, shifting gears a bit, is is young investigators yeah. at the ISSCR. How do you think that's going? Uh, I think it's been good. I mean, I think it's been. I mean, there's obviously been a conscious decision, rightly so, to bring the next generation on and have them, uh, you know, present their their data and their ideas and make them a more central part of the program rather than you know peripheral in sort of uh, not in the main. Uh, plenary session. So I think this is terrific. Uh, I think, it, it, you know, I think it needs to be encouraged in all sorts of areas. So I think, you know, one of the challenges I always feel is how we can get people, not only the young people in science, and we were discussing this uh, amongst ourselves at one of the meetings here, but also about some of the um, policy and mm -hmm. ethics uh, and also for me, coming from a clinical background, trying to get some of the younger clinicians to get more engaged with meetings like this. So one of the problems in medicine is people tend to polarise into either their clinic, clinicians and sitting clinics or their scientists who were a clinician, but they sit in the lab and they sort of vaguely remember the clinical side. So I think trying to get more people who actually really do bridge uh, and therefore can translate. But I think also there is, there is, a, there is a slight pressure in trying to get, not pressure, but I think trying to encourage younger people to get more involved with policy mm -hmm. because it's difficult because obviously policy is a rather slow burn. You have to respond to things. It doesn't get your papers and your science is what you're judged by. But actually you can't keep relying on, you know, the senior generation to take on these issues. You need to, you need to help shape your future. And certainly when I give lectures to undergraduates and we discuss some of the ethical and societal implications of what we do, they sort of say, oh, I'm just, it's, it's really, I mean, I don't need to know that. It's really boring. And you say, yeah, but it's the one thing you will have an opinion on. You know, right. That's one thing you don't need to read anything to have an opinion on that. And lots of people have opinions with having read nothing on it. So you can contribute to the debate. And ultimately what you're allowed to do will be determined not necessarily by you, but by society. And there will be ethical implications and there will be ethics boards that will oversee that. And as we've seen in the States uh, only uh, you know, recently is you know, the whole of the fetal tissue story, which you would yeah. have said if, from someone outside, you say, well, that was really resolved in the early 90s, as we were discussing earlier. It's now back. Right. And you know, as someone who's collected fetal tissue for, for decades, uh, on a research basis through a very highly regulated ethical program. Uh, the last five years, fetal tissue has become much, much more sought after because in order to demonstrate that your organoids or your cell differentiation protocol has made the cell you want, you have to know what normal development is like. And we don't know what normal human development is. And this fetal tissue has provided us with the you know crucial insights into that. So 
you know, trying to, I think, embolden and empower the, the, the younger generation as well to not just worry about their science in isolation, but to think of it in a slightly broader context. You know, can we help influence policy? Can we help influence, uh, you know, some of the discussions which take place in the more controversial areas? Uh, I think would be important. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's great. I, that kind of, I think, fills in for my last question, which was going to be a, a word of advice to young scientists. And I think that's it, right? To, to contribute to the policy discussion, to, to kind of, because you are, after all, setting the stage for your own future research and capabilities and, yes, and what you're going to be allowed to do. Absolutely. And I think, you know, if you don't pay attention to it, you may suddenly discover that you're you're not allowed to do what you you want to do and also it's a very good exercise in yourself just you know i often say this it comes back to just the question of you know making a stem making a stem cell product you know just because you can do something doesn't mean it's actually useful so you know you have to bear you have to put into context what you're doing to really understand uh you know where am i going what's the point of it and as is it the right thing to be doing and that's not to say it's wrong but you do need to engage with that and my other advice always for young scientists is the is you know, stick at what you're doing and accept that fields come and go in terms of fashion. So if I look back on my own career, you know, when I first went into transplantation of the nervous system in the late 1980s, which, you know, dark history, uh, everybody was doing it. It was a new field. It only come, it only been, it was less than 10 years old. It was the most exciting field of regenerative medicine. And of course, I did my PhD when I did uh, neurology chain, came back into it. Everyone thought it was terrific. The trials came out in 2001-03. Uh, 15 years ago, it was completely dead. No one was interested in transplants. It had its day. Uh, and now, of course, it's it's right back in the, uh, the forefront, really. Uh, so I've stuck at it for 30 years. You know, for about 20 years, it was very fashionable. For 10 years, uh, it was completely out of fashion. And the temptation, of course, is to say, after 10 years, I'm going to jump into gene therapy. Then I'll jump into something else. And the problem with jumping from field to field is you're never the master of anything because you're always catching up on what other people have done. So I think, you know, the skill of a successful, you know, career is is staying sticking with what you believe is of interest and what you want to study, moving with the time, so you know, moving with the techniques and new inventions and approaches they come along. But I think always staying true to what you really want to study and understand. That's great advice. I mean, it's hard in this field because you talk to a lot of young scientists so like, yeah, I found that I couldn't compete so i tried to reinvent and it's competing influences i think on on young scientists whether they should reinvent themselves every couple of years or but i think what you said there is 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 exactly it state of the core move the techniques the techniques change apply them yeah great advice dr barker thanks so much for joining us Uh, this is a real delightful discussion thank you very much That brings us to the end of our second ISSCR episode. Our third and last in the mini-series will be coming out in two weeks on September 24th. Until then, let us know what you think. You can reach us on Twitter, at Stem Cell Podcast, or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com. See you next time.